Good evening, everybody. It is December 31st, 2020. Congratulations, you have made it to the end of the year. This final quarter, we've been talking about the last four months of this year and how we were going to finish strong, how we were going to give our all to God and how we were yet going to live with great expectation. And I pray that you have lived that way. Well, now we're coming to the close of the year. We're about to move into 2021. But before we moved into 2021, I wanted to do a little review of 2020. We wanted to do a 2020 rewind for our watch night service tonight. Yes, we're preparing and praying and praising and receiving the word in the into from 2020 into 2021. And what better way to do it than to virtually worship and give God praise and glory and honor for that which he's already done to lay hold of the word that he gave us in 2020 and prepare ourselves for a new season, for a new year, for a new opportunity. Praise God for the opportunities we had in 2020. And I'm looking forward to what God is doing in 2021. So join us as we count down 2020, move into 2021 with a word, with a rewind of 2020.
say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And I just wonder for a moment. It struck me in reading this text. In seeing the unity of these men. In seeing the unity of these people who were suffering together. In seeing the togetherness of these men who were tired of their situation. In seeing the unity of these men who had decided that they had suffered long enough. These men were unified along this principle that something needs to change in our situation. Something needs to change in our condition. It struck me when reading this, after hearing the incidents of the death of so many black men and black people who have died unnecessarily, I wonder if America, if we would raise up our voice together, if we'd understand that we're suffering and that if one person suffers, we're all suffering. That there, that there is not racial suffering, but there's human suffering. If we would understand that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If we as a people, as a nation, unified under God, would have the same unity as these ten lepers. And if we would cry out in one voice and say, Jesus Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on our world. If we cried out with one voice, I wonder if God would just not turn our situation around. The word says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will hear their land. I'll heal their land. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. The nails being driven in his hands and the nails being driven in his feet. And Jesus hanging only by the weight of his ligaments from the cross that was lifted. We can't celebrate the beauty of Easter if we don't understand Jesus on the cross. I ask you again, can you drink from my cup? He's saying because you belong to me. You're one member of my flock. You have my name on you. And it's beautiful to have God's name on you. Because when your name is not sufficient, the name of God will bring you through trouble that you don't deserve to get out of. It's good to have God's name on you. That means you're covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood has covered you and he has claimed you as one of his own. I've been washed in the blood of the Savior. I have accepted him as my Savior and my Lord. So he continuously delivers me out of trouble that sometimes I deserve. The wages of sin is death. But despite my errors, despite my fault, God continually leads me into the path of life. 
despite the trouble and the turmoil that I caused others and that I had put myself in. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Jesus said, if you have my blood, if you've been covered by my blood, if you belong to my flock, he said, if my name is on you, he said, you can ask anything in my name, anything, and it shall be done. Because you've been covered in my blood. You belong to the flock of God. God's name is written on your life. God's name is written in your heart and on your spirit. There was a sense of belonging because I belong to God. There's a sense of coverage because I belong to God. There's a sense of direction because I belong to God. I can hope because I live under his protection and I live under his direction. I live under God's protection and I live under his direction. So there's a reason for hope. God is directing my story. God is the director of the narrative. The devil can't rewrite God's narrative because God is my director. COVID-19 can't rewrite my narrative because God is my director. Whatever is plaguing our nation right now cannot rewrite my narrative. It does not have the power and the authority to touch my path. Because God is my director. He leads me in the path of righteousness because his name is on me. For his name's sake. God, I'm living, there's a reason to hope. Because I'm living under God's protection. And I'm living under God's direction. Here it says a very often quoted scripture. It's very quoted, but we don't have access to it. If we're not under God's protection and under his direction, we hear it a lot and sometimes it's taken out of context. It is not made accessible to those who have not found themselves under God's protection and under his direction. You can't go any way you want to go and follow your own path and expect to have access to what the word says here in Psalm 23 and 4. Many times it's quoted, but it's pulled out of context and it's not applicable if you're not first under God's protection and under his direction. You can't follow your own path and still expect and anticipate to receive the blessings that are associated with Psalm 23 and 4. Psalm 23 and 4 says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. It says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What some people don't understand, what you don't get from that, is when he's saying the rod and, they, and your staff comfort me, it's saying I'm being comforted by your direction. I am comforted by your direction. You're present. You have to be present to give direction. Parents come in here. If you want to direct, help direct your children's life and put them on the right path, you have to be present. You can't direct their lives from afar. 
You have to be present to give your children direction. You have to be present to give them discipline. You can't be gone all the time and expect to discipline your children. You have to be present to give your children direction. And that's what David is saying here. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. He's saying I am comforted and I'm wrapped in safety because I feel your presence and I feel your direction. These disciples that are talking about sitting at his left hand and at his right hand, he asked them, can you pray with me for one hour? Can you tarry one hour with me while I pray? And we, we want to step up. We want to be elevated. We're going to want to go to the next level, but can you pray for an hour? When is the last time you prayed for just one hour? That's what he was asking of the disciples. These, these disciples, they're, they're saying, I want to sit on your left. I want to sit on your right. I want to be elevated with you. I want to be esteemed when, I, when you claim your kingdom, when you go to be with your father in heaven. But can you tarry with Jesus for just one hour while he prays? Jesus is saying, I, I, he didn't even ask them to be your prayer partner. He said, just can you tarry with him? He didn't say, I need you to speak the words of prayer over my life. He said, no, can you just stay with me? He, he, didn't, he didn't even say, let's, let's touch and agree or agree as touching while we pray. He just said, can you tarry there with me for just one hour? And each time Jesus went back, the men were asleep. The same men that wanted to sit on his left and his right. The same men that wanted to be esteemed with him when he claimed his kingdom in heaven. Couldn't tarry with Jesus for one hour. As Jesus began to contemplate the weight of his assignment, Jesus understood that there was weight that was sitting upon his shoulders. It was a weight like no other man has ever known because it was the weight of the entire world. The sins of the world were being laid upon him. He understood the weight of his assignment. So when the man said, we want to be esteemed, we want to step out, we want to sit beside you, Jesus said, baby, you're not ready for this cup. You're not ready for the weight of this assignment. You're not ready for what has to be laid upon me so that the world can be free from the sin. And I just praise God for a moment. I, I thank God that he was willing to bear, to bear the weight. I, I thank God that Jesus was willing to take on the assignment. I thank God that he was willing to sacrifice himself for me. Could have stayed in heaven. He didn't have to come down in human form. He could have remained esteemed right there by the side of his father. But he chose to be the sacrifice, the propitiation of my sin, to stand in the gap for me. Because he knew I couldn't get it together by myself. And I say for me, I, I wasn't born when he died, but, but he still did it as if it were just for me. And that's the personal nature of salvation when we begin to contemplate the great sacrifice that Christ made. He did it just for us so that we might be saved, so that he could stand, so that we could be justified. And justified means just as if I did not see. When I proclaim and, and lay hold to the salvation that, that Christ made available to me, it's as if I did not fall 
It's as if I did not sin because I'm hidden behind the blood of Jesus. And I, I just thank and praise God for the blood today. If we're celebrating anything, you can't celebrate Easter with just Easter eggs and bunnies. Can't celebrate Easter with just eggs and, and Easter egg hunts. You can't just celebrate Easter with bright suits and bright and bright shirts and bright ties. You can't just celebrate Jesus with, with ruffled dresses and, and, and pretty hair bowls and, and beautiful hairstyles. But to understand the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, to understand the celebration of Easter, you first have to understand Jesus laying bloody upon the cross. You have to understand the pain of the crown of thorns being pressed into his head. You have to understand the whips, the lashes, the, the leather lashes that were, that were at the end. There was a metal tip so that it would scar the skin even more. He was given 39 lashes on his back. You can't understand Easter without understanding his suffering. You can't understand Easter if you don't understand the nails being driven in his hands and the nails being driven in his feet and Jesus hanging only by the weight of his ligaments from the cross that was lifted. We can't celebrate the beauty of Easter if we don't understand Jesus on the cross. I ask you again, can you drink from my cup? 1, 9 and 10. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli was the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost and the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Samuel's mother learned that even the priest, even if he thinks I'm crazy and drunk, I'm still going to go after God. Eli looked at her in her distressed state and he said, because she was muttering, her, 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 her lips were moving but no words were coming out. He said, this woman must have partaken of wine. But she kept on praying and she kept on believing. And because of the sincerity of her prayer, Eli proclaimed to her, he said, whatever you're praying for, May it be done unto you. That's how sincerely she prayed unto God. She was praying to God that she might have a son. She was not praying for a son that was already there. Really, she wasn't praying for Samuel. She was praying for the possibility of Samuel. And when I began to think of mothers praying for the possibilities of their children, I began to realize that fathers, we don't even have a chance because those women, those mothers, they have been praying for the possibility of that child before it ever came to fruition. Before the child was ever born, the mother was praying for her child. She was praying for the safety of their child. She was praying for the health of her child. She was praying for the destiny of her child. She was praying that her child would have purpose. That's exactly what Hannah was praying. She said, Lord, if you allow me to have a son, I will turn his destiny, I will turn his purpose over to you. I will give him to you. I will entrust his trajectory to you. I will entrust his life to you. She was praying for a child that had not been born. The woman was not even pregnant, but she was praying for the possibility of that child. And I praise God that we have mothers who pray for our possibilities. 
And the beautiful thing about it, and I want to talk to some children out there, you feel like you've disappointed your parents, you feel like you're not where you want to be, I want to let you know that mothers never stop praying for your possibilities. They pray for your possibilities when you fall. They pray for your possibilities when you fail. They pray for your possibilities when you're hurt. They pray for your possibilities even when you feel damaged. They pray for your possibilities when you're suspended from school. They pray for your possibilities if you're arrested and thrown in jail. Your mother never stops praying for the possibility of a child that she has been praying for before you were ever conceived. That mother is going to continue to love you. That mother is going to continue to smile at you. That mother is going to continue to embrace you. That mother is going to continue to be your prayer warrior. She's going to continue to be a wall that you can lean upon. Because before you were ever born, before you were ever conceived, that mother was praying for the possibility of you. And just like God, God does not see us simply for who we are, but he sees us for who we shall be. I said you need to thank your mom, thank your mother for praying for your possibility. Not only are fathers kind, but fathers are investors. Investors, fathers are investors. See, in, in, in the in the text here, it says that God feeds them. He doesn't donate, but God invests. There is a difference between a donation and an investment. If I give you a hundred dollars as a donation, I give you the hundred dollars, and then I walk away. I don't expect anything else from you. If you say thank you, I appreciate it, but I don't expect much more than your gratitude if I give you a donation. I won't be coming back to check on my donation because I've given it freely. I'm not anticipating receiving any dividends from that which I have given you. It was simply a donation. And unfortunately in this world, we have some men who are, who are donors. They're not really true fathers. They donated the genetic material for the purpose of having a child, but that's the only thing that they've given. They're not investors, they're donors. They invested the material, then they walked away. They didn't have much to do with the upbringing of the child. But I'm telling you, a real good father is not a person who's a donor, but he is an investor. He invests in the future of that child. He invests in the success of that child. He makes sure that what he has invested turns out well. The best way to describe it is God in his parable about the talents. When he gave the men the talents, he gave one five and gave one two and gave one one. You know what he did? He didn't give it to them and then leave and never check on it again. But he went back to check on the progress of his investment. He's letting them know that was not a donation, that was an investment. I'm coming back to check on what you've done with what I gave you. What are you doing with what I gave you? And that's what real fathers do. They check on the progress of their investment. They want to check and see what are you doing with what I gave you. You have to inspect what you expect. You have to inspect what you expect. If you're expecting a dividend, if you're expecting a return, then you go back and check on it. 
Fathers who are donors, they have to be donors if they never come check on the progress of that child because a real investor will come and check and see what is happening. What is the progress of that which they have invested in? What's going on with it? In the parable, the master came back and said, one had five and he made it ten. He said, good servant. One had two and he made it four. And he said, God bless you, you're a good and faithful servant. But then the one who had one only kept the one and didn't make it better. He didn't improve it. And the master was upset. He was wrong. He said, this wasn't a donation. This was an investment. And I expect you to improve on the investment that I made in you. Good fathers invest in their children. They check on the progress of their children. Good fathers go, they'll go to the parent-teacher conference to check on their child. Good fathers check on their children's grades to make sure that they're doing, they're meeting their requirements. To make sure that they're rising to the level of their potential. Good fathers go to IEP meetings. Good fathers go to 504 meetings. Good fathers pick up their children from sports and athletics. Good fathers make sure that there's transportation arranged for their children when they have after school activities. Good fathers are investors, so they check on the status and progress of their child because they didn't make a donation. They made an investment. But good fathers also have to be near. N-E-A-R, near. You have to be near. You have to be proximate to the child. You have to be close to them. You have to be present to check on the progress of your investment. You must be near to the child. You must be near to their progress. You must be near to their growth. I don't care if you're a father and you and the mother, it didn't work out. So so you never got married or or you're not married now. You got divorced. It doesn't matter. You still need to be near to that child because you have an investment in that child and you need to be close to that child. You need to be as close to that child as much as possible because good fathers are near to their children. They are present. The word says here in our text, it says your father knows that you need him because he is near to you. Your father, he knows that you you need him. God, God knows that you need him. God knows what you have need of because he's near to you. David said this way, incline thine ear to me, O God. In other words, because you're close to me, I know that I can talk to you. To invest consistently in your child, you have to be near enough to them to talk to them. You have to give them some words of guidance. You have to give them some words of encouragement. They don't care if there are 2,000 people cheering for them in the baseball game. They're looking for you. They don't care if nobody else comes to their musical performance at school. They're looking for you. Baby, they're performing for an audience of one. If my daddy is there, then everything is all right. If my daddy is there, then everything is okay. Good fathers are near. They are proximate. They are close to their children. Just as God said, I know what you have need of because I'm near to you. Because I'm close to you. You won't know what your children really need, what they desire, what they hope for, or even what they fear if you're not near them. Good fathers are near to their children. 
To get a full understanding of what she's trying to say, you have to be near her. The same is with a child. To truly understand their needs, what they, what they require, what they desire, you have to be close to them. Because they're communicating with them. They're learning to communicate anyway, especially a small child. They don't have all the right words to say. But what they're saying is done by their expression and their body language. I'll give you an example of my child. My daughter came to me the other day. I was in the office, home, and she walked in. and She said, Dad, said, do you have time to play dolls with me? I said, well, well, well baby, I'm, I'm really working on something. She hung her head, and she said, okay, Daddy, that's okay. Then she started walking away. I immediately put down what I was doing. I said, oh, okay, baby, what, what do you need? What do you want to do? She wanted to play dolls. Fathers, if you have daughters, be prepared to play dolls. So we played dolls. I said, what are the dolls doing today, Brennan? She said, I don't know. What do you think they should do? I said, well, let's watch movies. So we set the dolls up in front of the television like they're in a movie theater. And we were watching a movie with the dolls. I would have missed, if I were on the phone and she told me okay, because I wasn't near to her, I would have missed the full expression of what she was trying to say. Good fathers, you must be near to your children. And I implore you this because maybe your relationship makes this challenging. Maybe you're not together. Maybe you don't live in the same house. Fathers, fight for your children. Fight to be close to them. Fight to be near them. Because you never know when you'll miss a moment just like what I told you.
2020 has certainly challenged the concept of whether or not we are living an abundant life. How can I be living an abundant life when I'm ravaged on every side by the pandemic? I'm encased by fear of contracting this deadly virus. How can I be living victorious and how can I be living life abundantly when my job is shutting down and I'm, I'm having to change jobs? I'm having to scrap. I'm having to, to look for unemployment to try and sustain me during the time of this pandemic. When I, I, I get one check for the government and I'm hoping for another one to help sustain me and it seems like it's not coming. How can I say that I'm living a victorious and abundant life when even the very little things that help to sustain me do not seem to be present? Jobs are cutting back. Jobs are not only laying off, but then they're asking others to take reduced salaries. And, and then if, they, if, you, if you were scheduled for a raise, then the raise didn't come because of the pandemic. And you're concerned about your health. You're concerned about work. You're concerned about so many things that seem to challenge the notion that we are living victoriously. But see, the issue of us living victoriously and us living, uh, us living an abundant life we have to understand that the purpose of our abundance, the purpose of us living victoriously is not the acquisition of things. Living victoriously is not about acquiring things, because if you live long enough, you'll understand that acquiring things come with their own trouble. You get enough of something, you'll recognize that trouble comes along with it. I was discussing with a friend and a relative who was talking about somebody who had a beautiful home that, that, that lived uh, on, on the outskirts of, of a major city. And we're looking at how beautiful it was. And we were talking about, whoa, that's wonderful. With a nice pool and a, a big, beautiful house. And then I, I looked down, Brother Osborne, at the, the tax bill they get every year. And the tax bill they get every year is worth more than the house I live in. And I was like, well, Lord, you can have that <laughs> because the, the acquisition of things, I, I'm telling you, accompanying that is trouble, is trials that come along with that. So what I need you to understand is that we must not determine whether or not we're living victorious based on the acquisition of things. The Bible says, set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. They also tell us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is where our battle is, and that's where our battle is won. That's how we live victorious. This type of victory that I'm talking about, you might not sleep in a double king-size bed. You can look it up. It's, it's ridiculously large. You might not sleep in a, bit, in a bed that large, but you might be in your twin bed, your twin mattress might be laying on your floor, but you can sleep at night because you have victory in your heart. You have victory in your mind and you're not encumbered and troubled by the things of this world. You might you might not live, might not ride in a in, in a Bentley limousine. I don't even want to figure out how much that is. Let's just say it is it's expensive. You know how we say, not expensive, expensive. <laughs> but I, 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 I might drive in my, in my one passenger, you go. I don't know if they even make those anymore. <laughs> but, but if it gets me from point A to point B, 
gets me to where I need to go to sustain my life. While I'm driving down the road, I can whistle and be happy because my victory is in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit. And it sustains me to have peace when everything else around me seems to be falling apart. Sharing in the last quarter of this year that is 2020 is the final quarter. And during the final quarter of any activity or, or any sport.